0: Okay, go ahead, please. (coughs) Go ahead. My
1: name is Maureen Hawkins. Um, Part of the background to my question is simply that Netanyahu seems to have abandoned the idea of a two-state solution. Uh, There was a recent excavation of a Canaanite grave that was well enough
2: preserved to uh, allow DNA to be extracted. The DNA turns out to be identical to the DNA of today's
1: Palestinians. It suggests, therefore, that they have been there even longer than Jews. As an Israeli friend of mine said to me, it's a question not of right and wrong, but a question of two rights and there isn't room for them. How do you think Israel should proceed
0: to accommodate both rights. Thank you.
1: I think if we go back through history, we all started in Africa. So um, before there were Jews, before there were Arabs, before there were Palestinians, um, there were people. I I think that in my mind, your Israeli friend is exactly right. The story here is two peoples who have legitimate claims and who have to share a land in some way. I personally think a two-state solution is the solution. I believe that... um, I believe that the Palestinians have not quite got to the point that they're willing to accept the existence of a Jewish state in Israel. I think that there was a time that the Israeli government was ready to make unbelievable uh, concessions. Unfortunately, time has passed and things have changed. But I haven't given up hope.
0: Okay, thank you. Next question or comment, please.
3: Uh, Barb Phillips, thank you for a very good presentation. I I learned a lot. Uh, I'd just like you to comment, and it doesn't matter who, uh, of why uh, last week President Trump cancelled the Iran nuclear deal. This week they had the ceremony in Jerusalem of moving the embassy uh, we all know it's a powder keg. You're, you spoke to that in your 30-minute conversation. Uh, so why, why are we doing it this way this week now and causing the Palestinians to throw rocks and light tires on fire and let's lob a few tear gas missiles over the wall? Just why? What do you think the, the reasoning for all this is in the world?
0: Okay, thank you.
4: It's, um, it's difficult, and I don't think we're going to try to speak to the um, uh, U.S. government and why they, why they chose to do things when they chose to do them. Um, I think that the Iran deal and the moving of the embassy, uh, I think those things were chosen in isolation from one another, I think the embassy, uh, they chose to move the embassy when they chose to move the embassy because it was the anniversary, 70 years from Israel's declaration of independence. And one can question the timing um, uh, of that move uh, and, and call it ill-advised. I, for one, would probably agree with that. Um, the... Uh, the Palestinian reaction to the move on the embassy is something that is—it's uh, within their power to control. Uh, it, when one really analyzes it, the movement of that embassy is symbolic. It recognizes a fact: Jerusalem has always been the capital of Israel. It is uh, and always been the capital of the Jewish people. Uh, from a religious point of view and it's always been the capital of Israel uh, uh, from a political point of view. This recognizes that fact on the ground and I don't believe it changes Palestinian aspirations in any way. It is the embassy is not in East Jerusalem. it's in West Jerusalem, uh, which is an area that I don't think is is, uh, is by most moderate people is in, in an area that's in dispute and where it, what part of what country it's going to be in when the two state solution is finally declared but the timing of it uh, i would agree is ill advised
0: thank you next question please
5: my name is douglas mitchell on the 21st of july 1946 i was in jerusalem the day before the ergon blew up the king david hotel and kicked, killed 91 people indiscriminately There were British service people, there were Arabs, there were even seven Jews killed amongst those 91. Uh, And so I think the answer to this is violence. Unless we abhor and abjure from violence of all kinds, we'll never have a two-state solution. And uh, when I look back at those times, and the Zionists have got to take a large measure of the blame for that, that as a member of the British Mandate sent there by the British government originally with the Balfour Declaration in 1917, followed up with the approval of the League of Nations in 1922 after over 300, 400 years of Ottoman rule, which we were involved with the Arabs in uh, expelling. Uh, The answer to this is that the, the Israeli Zionists created at least three terrorist groups that I remember who were bound and determined to get the British out of there as soon as possible, and consequently they resorted to violence, violence of all kinds, particularly against British armed forces members. And I carried a loaded revolver in my holster for the only time in my life during the time I was there. So I wonder if you can address this thing Because violence has been at the heart of the history of this country back in thousands of years, not just hundreds, not just back back to biblical times, but long before that. Okay. So, so my my question is how do we get away from the violence which pervades both sides of the uh, equation?
0: Thank you.
6: Thank you for the uh, great question. Someone who's had their feet on the ground there. Um, Thank you. Violence has certainly uh, dominated what has taken place over many of those years. However, we have seen glimmers of hope. We have seen these negotiations. Unfortunately, they've become derailed in many of these instances by extremists on Many sides. So, how do we get away? How do we break this cycle? Let me suggest that what's taken place in Gaza over the last couple days is a, is a great springboard for what needs to be done. Israel has historically put forth agreements proposals to share these two states they have been rejected outright every time with no counter proposal what we see in gaza right now is a terrorist group who whose aims are absolutely being met by the media and people not looking objectively at this situation. So we are, our hearts, our heartstrings are tugged at when we see people being killed. The truth comes out 24 hours, 48 hours after the fact, admitted by Hamas themselves that 50 out of 60 casualties yesterday or the day before were Hamas operatives. Our heartstrings are tugged when we hear about a baby that died. 24, 48 hours later, a Hamas health official, a Gazan health official themselves, these are their words, says that baby did not die because of tear gas. This baby had a pre-existing condition. But as we look at these situations and allow ourselves to play into Hamas's hands, which is simply to make Israel look as bad as possible. Israelis abhor the idea of continued casualties. But 40,000 people at your border whose objective is to breach your border where you have civilian populations within a kilometer are not something, that's not something that Israel cannot take seriously. So how to, again back to your question, we need to reinforce. I'm a behaviorist in my, in my professional work. We need to reinforce good behavior. We don't reinforce bad behavior. Hamas was sending innocent people to that border. There are many verified instances of that. Were there innocent people, nonviolent people at these protests? Definitely. But Hamas was urging people on. The more casualties that they can present to the media, the better. This is. Continuing to perpetuate a, perpetuate a cycle of violence.
0: Okay, thank you. Next question, please, thank or you. comment.
2: Ruth Alzinga, uh, perhaps it is a comment, and you may have a response. But <clears throat> I was pleased that uh, for Israel, that the uh, U.S. moved their, in, their embassy to, to uh, Jerusalem. Um, That's very significant. Uh, given the 70th uh, anniversary. Now, my my question is this. I'm not a favorite. I'm not a a, a fan of Mr. Trump at all. And I was surprised to see big posters in Israel make Israel great again. And it bothered me. It was just a little too close to, to Mr. Trump. And so I would like your comment. Do you think that was, uh, uh, is, that the, is that what's going to make uh, Israel great again, having the embassy moved? Uh, as as much as I understand how meaningful that, that would be. Uh, and I have another comment, and I'm not on commission, but my husband and I saw a movie, uh, Seven Days in, in Tebi, uh, at the movie mail, and I recommend anybody who wants to, see that uh, you won't be disappointed so it's when the commandos rescued the hostage uh, 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 Jews uh, when, when that plane was uh, shipped to Entebbe so great movie and I'd love your comment on these posters
0: okay so comments on either of the two points or both of them please
1: well, I think I think um, I'll, I'll just repeat what um, I think Jeff said is that the uh, moving the embassy uh, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem is a hugely significant symbol. Um, it recognizes the fact on the ground that this is Israel's capital. It has always been Israel's capital. The Knesset, the government, the um, seat of government is there. The Supreme Court is there. It is. Um, Israel's capital. So I think it's a hugely significant thing. Trump has a lot of fans in Israel because of, of uh, the positions he's taken, and I'm not going to comment on that.
0: <laughs> okay. Next comment or question, please.
7: Uh, my name is Mike McKeg. <clears throat> I just would be interested to hear your, your comment. I, I understand that either side has to put forward their version of events. And I know that uh, there's been uh, statements in the press that uh, Hamas just ran in front of the bullets and got 60 people killed and that. But if you're going to defend what the Israeli government or army is doing, they're one of the, probably one of the better armies in the world. And I'd like an explanation of why a Canadian doctor in his scrub uniform, standing by himself, well <clears throat> away from the fence, would be shot by an Israeli sniper. Uh, that one just doesn't make sense.
0: Okay.
4: Um, I, I don't think we know why the doctor was shot. I, th- I think it's fair to say that uh, the Israeli soldiers do not have in their terms of engagement that they are to attack medical people. Uh, I do know that even um, that in conflicts sometimes soldiers even shoot their own soldiers it 's an error. Uh, I do know also that the that the Hamas um, uh, people who who came to demonstrate and were orchestrated by Hamas burned tires to uh, destroy the visibility of the of uh, Israeli soldiers on people that were coming to the border. Uh, This is a slide that was taken recently, and it shows the kind of chaos that's at that border. So um, we don't know, and I'm sure there'll be some kind of investigation, but I doubt that that was a deliberate shot at that doctor.
0: Okay, thank you. Next question or comment, please.
8: Terry Shillington. Thank you very much for a very informative presentation. Um, one has the impression over a number of years that there are no good guys in this story uh, i, I don 't want to begin to defend uh, some of the Palestinian tactics and their negotiating stances and Hamas 's <clears throat> leadership. but frequently, uh, our church has observe, has, has uh, seen the average Palestinian on the ground as a victim in this whole process as well and uh, we 've had a number of ecumenical observers. In Palestine over the years, uh, trying to um, protect Palestinians. And Tad Mitsui was one of those, by the way, and I'm sorry he's not here today. But many ecumenical observers describe the tactics of the Israeli government vis a vis Palestinians moving in and out of the land as quite oppressive themselves and mean spirited in terms of uh, travel permission and, and delays and all this kind of thing. Um, so I wonder if you'd care to comment. Thank you.
1: I asked to take this one because I wanted to respond to the thought that there are no heroes um, and there are no good guys in this story. And there are good guys in this story. I want to talk about the Israelis and the Palestinians who are working on coexistence. And there are Israelis, and there are Palestinians who are meeting, and who are talking, and who are trying to sort things out, human to human. Um, There are a lot of good people. Not necessarily... um, if, if, If peace were in the hands of those people, there would be peace. There are a lot of people who are opposed to peace. For various reasons, and there are a lot of people who provide who put up obstacles. I have to say, and in response to the second part of the question about the hardship of living under occupation, absolutely there's hardship, absolutely there is. I think that the um, often the hardship is exaggerated, and often the worst instances are publicized, when the day-to-day, um, the, posi- the, the, the um, day-to-day life that goes on, nobody pays attention to. And I think that, I think that it's very difficult when um, conflict is what we report on. It's very, we very rarely see reports of positive events. And there are positive events, and I think we have to keep looking for those and keep reinforcing those. And when it comes to you know, supporting um, Israel and Palestine, I think we have to support those people who are working for coexistence, not the people who are working to uh, destroy any prospects of peace.
0: Okay, thank you. Next comment or question, please.
1: Um, I'm Rita Marr, and thank you for an excellent presentation. My question is this: um, Where the, the Israeli settlers have been dragged kicking and screaming out of the land they were working, which was previously Palestinian land, and where land was given back, for example, Gush Katif, I heard that after it was given back, that the land was abandoned, the greenhouses were trashed, and so forth. Have there been any positive responses from the Palestinian people to getting some of this land back and for the good things that have been done? That's my question.
0: Thank you.
6: There have been amazing things. Uh, They have what uh, is described as a cold peace, and we'll take a cold peace, uh, with Egypt. There has been much more cooperation with Jordan. In addition, some of the negotiations that took place through Oslo led to much greater autonomy for Palestinians in the West Bank. In terms of Gaza, Gaza was a very important litmus test, if you will, to see what was going to take place with that exchange of land to the Palestinians. There there are very few positives to take out of that. Um, You're right, there was an infrastructure left supported very much by uh, American Jews, um, American Jewish philanthropists who left an infrastructure of greenhouses the moment that Israel completed its withdrawal, they were destroyed. It was left there to create some economy, some opportunity um, for Gazans to have some industry and some hope. And within less than two years, after the election that Hamas won, they also threw out the Palestinian Authority in a, in a bloody coup. So Gaza has not been a good model of that, but fortunately there have been some good models. Again, it, it, it gets back to Judy's point, your question, about whose interests are being served in, in many of these in, instances. Egypt had some interest in cold peace with Israel. Hamas, as, as their, their existence, depends on Palestinians being unified in their hatred towards Israel. They're not providing them with anything. They're turning away humanitarian trucks right now. The Palestinian Authority, who controls the utilities going into the Gaza Strip, is in their best interest also to suffocate Hamas. So we have to look at whose interests are being served. And as it stands, with Hamas, who are now 14 years into a four-year elected term, it is their it is in their interest to continue to hold the Gazans hostage to their rule. It's very sad. Okay, thank
0: you. Next question, please.
9: (laughs) Okay, my name is Henning Mundel, and uh, first, a quick question. Have all three of you been to Israel? Yes. And who has been, perhaps, most recently? I have a question that relates to development. Okay. I was there two years ago. okay, maybe to you, ma'am, because you mentioned uh, somehow about the, that uh, sort of all the Arabs are against the uh, Israelis, but on the, I want to address my observation from half a century ago, 1968, just one year after the Six-Day War, uh, about the Arabs within Israel, and uh one of my hosts there was the head of uh, seed and nursery stock inspection for the country. I'm an agriculturist, retired. And so we traveled up and down the country quite a bit, but that's half a century ago. But it was so apparent, this village is Arab, this is Jewish, this is Arab because of the poverty and the poor production and so on. So I would just uh, wonder, developmentally an update is there more equalization taking place in that connection?
1: There's still a gap. Um, it, the gap is not as big as it used to be, but there is, there is still a gap. Twenty percent of Israel's population is uh, Arab or Palestinian, if you want to call them Palestinian. Um, it used to... Uh, when Okay. I first went to Sorry, Israel Sorry, some in of those Arabs were
9: ultra-Christian Arabs, yes, by the way. Yes, and some
1: are Christians. Um, so, uh, I first went to Israel in 1968, and I studied at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, and there were very few Arab students. Um, today, 20% of all the university populations are Arab students, Christian or Muslim, but Arab. Um, so there's more equity in education, um there's more equity in health care it's not perfect um for sure it's not perfect. there's still a lot of segregation um and you know again when we're talking about about the good guys, I just had uh I just met somebody who's in charge of some schools that are um uh, Arab and Jewish schools, where the language of instruction in, in the classroom is Hebrew and Arabic. There's one Hebrew-speaking teacher, one Arabic-speaking teacher, and yeah, that's small. There's only eight of the schools in the country now, but and they started with kindergarten. Now they go up to grade 12. It and it, they're public schools. They're publicly funded. Um, there's there things are changing. There are now um, Arab uh, diplomats. I think there's an Arab uh, judge on the Supreme Court. Mm. Things are changing. Things are getting better.
9: Thank you very much. I really okay. appreciate it.
0: Okay. Thank you. Well, while we're waiting to see if there is another question, I have a question for you. You showed the historic photo in your presentation of Prime Minister Rabin and Yasser Arafat with Bill Clinton in the background. That was 25 years ago, 1993. Um, It would seem that the leaders of those days were more successful in bringing the Israelis and Palestinians together. Would you say, in your presentation, you said that you don't really see a prospect for peace? The two-state solution is still on the books but it's receded far into the distance. Would you say we have to wait until the next generations of of Israeli and Palestinian leaders to bring that uh, formula back? In other words, can the current leaders make peace or do we have to wait for another generation?
4: I think it's true that the current um, Israeli leadership uh, sees far less prospects for peace than, than they did 25 years ago. Um, there's been an awful lot of water under the bridge since that. There's been the second intifada since, uh, since the Oslo Accords. There have been implementations of the Oslo Accords, however it's not entirely dead. And the fact that the Palestinian Authority uh, provides the civil administration for 80% of the Palestinians living in the West Bank as an example of the fact that, um, that those accords have been implemented. But I do think that um, uh, both uh, sets of populations have moved away from the prospect of peace because of the failure of both the... Uh, and I think there was a near success in 2000 and also in 2008, but there was just no no real partner that was able to bring the Palestinians along at that time and I think that has has led the current Israeli government to to believe that there's no prospects for peace but a change in leadership on the Palestinian side which has got to happen sooner or later um, and, uh, and and who knows then what it might awaken in in the Israeli population and and who they might elect after after the current government so I wouldn't say uh, that prospects for peace are dead. They may be delayed a bit.
0: Thank you. This will be our last question, please. Uh,
4: Gary Stauffer here. Uh,
7: I'd like your comments on the Israeli government and the uh, Israeli leadership. Uh, You've stated that they have a hawkish system. Given the system that has so many fragmented parties and the fact of all the trade-offs that they have to do, Do you hold out any hope that that system will lead to uh, less hawkish individuals or a less hawkish uh, system? Um, I look at that and I I think, what hope is there? What hope do you have?
6: I think there is an important distinction. Um, Yes, hawkish government, far from hawkish system, um, this is a country with free elections. So we have a government, I think maybe what you're referring to as a hawkish system is the fact that Benjamin Netanyahu, who sits far to the right, has m- more recently, though this is recent because it hasn't been the case for, for a lot of his term, brought in more of the religious right into his um, coalition. coalition. Sorry. Uh, but a, a society that's got a free vote as israel has demonstrated over the course of its existence has the opportunity to elect people who are willing to make those changes one thing that i think judy had, or jeff had mentioned was israelis love a hug they cannot resist a hug it's a it's a proverbial saying obviously mm-hmm. but the reality is that when they feel secure they are willing to give back that embrace. When they don't, when they're backed up against, into a corner by the international community, when they feel like nobody understands what they're going through on the Gazan border, etc., that is when they tend to get into their turtle shell and elect hawkish governments. But there have been many doves elected. uh, For example, Ehud Olmert, Itzhak Rabin. The interesting thing is in some of the instances where they did elect a more right-leaning, what would be thought of as a hawkish government, those have been prime ministers that have seen the greatest breakthroughs, that have enabled the greatest breakthroughs in peace. So, for example, it was Ariel Sharon who saw the withdrawal from Gaza. It was Begin who was was, um, negotiating with Sadat. So we see some of those breakthroughs even with some of the hawkish strongest ones. So is Netanyahu the guy? I don't know. I don't think we've necessarily seen what he what kind of risks he's willing to take.
0: Okay, I think that question mark sums it up. A round of applause please for our speakers.